Well, good afternoon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Kennan Institute. My name is Will Pomeranz. I'm Deputy Director here at the Kennan Institute. And a brief note about uh, upcoming events on Monday, March 9th at 2 p.m. Uh, we will be joined by Misha Minikoff and Brian uh, Milikovsky to talk about the wartime Donbass economy, Can It Be Saved? So we hope to see you all here uh, to join us for that event. Well, today we're going to be talking about how Russia has grappled with how to address the issue of the 25 million ethnic Russians in other post-Soviet states. And to do so, we're so pleased to have Igor Zevolov with us. Uh, Igor is a George F. Kennan Fellow at the Kennan Institute and a former professor of National Security Studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for European Studies. He has been a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson and also taught at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's held numerous visiting professorships, uh, has had a very di diverse career, which also includes a stint as director of the of Russia office of the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, he has published five books and numerous articles, and his current research focus on questions of national identity, nationalism, <coughs> and Russian-American relations. So with that, Igor, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Yeah. I hope I have the right notes here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, millions of former Soviet citizens found themselves living in a new space. And this space was divided up according to new political borders. And many of those who considered themselves to be ethnically Russians uh, became citizens of the newly independent states that now neighbored Russia. And the new diaspora emerged overnight, not because people moved, but because borders moved. And how has Russia, Russia's political agenda has uh, taken into account the existence of Russian communities in states neighboring country, uh, Russia. And what are the consequences of Russia's policies for international peace and security in the region? And what are the consequences for Russian national identity? In my remarks, I will try to address these uh, questions. In order to write and speak about Russians abroad, political elites and leading uh, intellectuals in Russia have employed three major narratives. The Russian world, Russian civilization, and a divided people. These are slightly different discourses, but all of them reflect tension between actual Russian Federation political boundaries and the mental maps of Russianness that exist in the minds of many Russians. The Russian government's has, uh, government has supported these three narratives with concrete policy tools, including the protection of compatriots abroad and granting Russian citizenship to millions of people in states neighboring Russia, and proliferation of Russian passports in the post-Soviet space 
from my uh, perspective, may be the most far-reaching uh, geopolitical, may have uh, far-reaching geopolitical consequences, especially in view of dramatic changes in Russian citizenship law that took place in uh, the last two years. And this will be the focus of my talk today. And I will structure my remarks in the following way. First, I will talk about comparative transborder citizenship policies in general and identify the most similar cases to Russia. Second, I will discuss in more detail evolution of Russian citizenship law and policies. And finally, I will talk about some geopolitical implications and consequences for nation building in Russia. Citizenship is an essentially contested concept, like most concepts uh, in the social sciences. And citizenship regimes are often understood as formal and informal norms that define access to membership, as well as rights and duties associated with membership in the state. Citizenship policies are created by political elites who transform their visions of the state and the nation into law. These definitions do not sufficiently take into account international impact of many national citizenship policies, and they are sometimes transnational nature. In fact, citizenship policies tells, uh, tell us about how countries relate to each other. I identify four major international aspects of citizenship policies. Repatriation, known by uh, Israel, Germany, Kazakhstan, engage uh, this policy. Integration of immigrants, engagement of emigrants, and citizenship diffusion in keen neighboring states. I will talk about this fourth aspect in much more detail and hope uh, it will be clear what I mean. This situation emerges when the state wants to address the discrepancy between formal state borders and the domain of culture that is construed or perceived as something of paramount importance for national identity. And that is what Russia is doing. And of course, Russia is not unique. The most similar cases to Russian policies in this area are measures taken by Hungary, Serbia, Romania, and to some extent by Croatia and Bulgaria. These countries have adopted policies that offer citizenship to co-ethnics in neighboring states without require, uh, requiring residence, without requiring resettlement, and uh, without require, uh, requiring renunciation of their original citizenship. In most cases, people who get passports of Romania, Croatia, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Hungary in neighboring countries are dual citizens. Uh, citizens. And the years on the slide 
indicate the years when such policies were adopted. Hungary, of course, aims ethnic Hungarians in Serbia, Slovakia, and Ukraine. And that is how uh, they conduct their transborder citizenship policy. You see Prime Minister Orban congratulating the one millionth new Hungarian citizen currently living in Serbia. And this is what Russian nationalists want Putin to do. As they say in Budapest, Hungary is the only country in the world that is totally surrounded by Hungarians. <laughs> uh, ten years ago, that meant that it was surrounded by ethnic Hungarians, but today it refers to the situation when it is surrounded by Hungarian citizens. And this is a new situation that emerged in the last ten years. And uh, of course, Serbia targets Bosnia, Croatia, and Montenegro, and Croatia is, of course, a concern about Croats in Bosnia. And Romania aims Moldova, Bulgaria aims, of course, first of all, Macedonia. And it is important that the governments of Hungary, Serbia, Croatia, and Romania do not necessarily encourage resettlement. We see a growing number of non-resident citizens in neighboring countries. And all these countries try to engage co-ethnics living just across the border in territories most often lost through war or collapse. Citizenship policies in Central and Eastern Europe are intimately linked to the issues of national identity and historic memories. And these policies in Hungary, Serbia, and Russia are often emotional response to traumatic and often tragic events. Prime Minister Viktor Orban just 10 days ago said in his State of the Union, uh, State of the Nation address, the diktat, that is how he usually refers to the Treaty of Trianon in 1920, the diktat saw two-thirds of the country's territory and 63% of its population shorn from us. Thus, one in three Hungarians found themselves outside our borders. The verdict was obviously a death sentence. History has not recorded a nation that could survive such a loss of blood." End quote. Compare Orban's words to President Putin's infamous quip regarding the Soviet Union's collapse as a major geopolitical disaster of the century. It was coined in a very similar context. Few people remember how Putin continued this line about the greatest uh, geopolitical disaster or catastrophe, as sometimes it is translated from Russia. He said, as for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama. Tens of millions of our co-citizens and compatriots found themselves outside Russian territory. The end of the quote. That's why he called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest uh, disaster of the 20th, uh, 20th century. In Central and Eastern Europe, liberal citizenship 
regimes are almost always supported by the right-wing populist nationalist political actors and conservative constituencies. All this has led to the emergence of the special kind, new kind of ethnic diasporas. Their members are permanent residents of neighboring countries, but have very strong links to their homelands just across the border. In most cases, these non-residents, as I said already, are dual citizens. And the emergence of these diasporas in Central Europe and post-Soviet space raised questions about the legitimacy of existing political boundaries. What about Russia, finally? First of all, where do ethnic Russians who found themselves outside Russia after the Soviet collapse, where do they live? Three quarters of 25 million <coughs> ethnic Russians outside Russia live in just three states, in Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. And these three countries are important uh, for the matter I'm discussing today. There are two more states that are important, not because of absolute number of ethnic Russians, but because of geopolitics, Latvia and Estonia. They're important because they're in Europe, they're NATO and EU members, and unlike neighboring Lithuania, have a very high percentage of Russians and Russian speakers among their citizens and residents. Prior to 2014, Russian citizenship law, as well as other policies like repatriation policy or migration policies in Russia, did not make a distinction between ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, and other groups. And this stood in sharp contrast with repatriation policies and citizenship laws in Hungary, Serbia, or Croatia. And in this context, Russian citizenship policy looked inconsistent and even absurd to many Russian ethnic nationalists. But in 2014, 2019, dramatic changes in Moscow's official approach towards citizenship took place. And I would like to highlight four steps taken by the Kremlin, and these steps are reflected in the amendments to the citizenship law. First, in 2014, new amendments uh, said that uh, there, there would be a new legal category. It introduced a new legal category of Russian native speakers. And Russian native speakers became eligible for a fast-track naturalization procedure. And by the way, in 1989, this is the year of the uh, last Soviet population census before the collapse, there were 36 million native Russian speakers outside the borders of the Russian Federation. Second step, in 2017, citizens of Ukraine acquired a special status in Russian citizenship law. In general, in order to get naturalization in Russia, you have to renounce your old citizenship. From 2017, 
if you are a Ukrainian citizen, you just show your application, your заявление to abandon your Ukrainian citizenship. That's enough in order to apply for uh, Russian citizenship. And actual legal withdrawal is not necessary more, uh, anymore for Ukrainian citizens. This is exactly, by the way, how Bulgaria changed its citizenship law in 2001. It did away with the residency and renunciation of all citizenship requirements. Third amendment, geographically specific categories of individuals eligible for super fast track naturalization were introduced last year in 2019. And according to Putin's orders, a super fast track procedure when applying for Russian citizenship was granted to residents of the unrecognized Donetsk and Lugansk uh, People's Republics. Later on, uh, and this was the fourth step I indicated here, this privilege was granted to all those who resided in the Donetsk and Lugansk regions of Ukraine, including those areas controlled by Kyiv. There are about 7 million people who are eligible to acquire citizenship within three months time frame now. So who will now receive new Russian, uh, Russian passports? My understanding informed in part by my interviews with uh, major policymakers in Moscow last fall, ideally citizens of Ukraine who will remain residents of Ukraine will receive these Russian, Russian passports. In April last year, Putin said his administration is considering a plan to ease the process of granting Russian citizenship to all Ukrainians, not only those in Donetsk and Lugansk. Here is the remark made by Putin on April 27 at a summit in Beijing. Quote, we are thinking about simplifying the procedure of granting Russian citizenship to all Ukrainian citizens in general, end of quote. Putin's words should be taken seriously, I believe. So these developments were almost unnoticed in the West. And meanwhile, Ukrainian officials became very nervous. And the Ukrainian government was swift to condemn Russian moves last year. And of course, Ukrainians remember that in 2014, it turned out that many senior Ukrainian military and security officials had Russian passports. This brings me to my next point, to individual level of analysis. And this cartoon may seem funny, but from my perspective is absolutely misleading. It looks like Mr. Putin is fishing for naive, excuse me, idiots. He plans to have them for dinner tonight. 
but his citizenship policies are not that kind of fishing. It is rather catch and release fishing. After capture, the fish are unhooked <coughs> and returned to the water. And Mr. Putin wants Ukrainians to take the Russian passport and return to Ukraine. The fish, however, and that's what this cartoon is totally missing, is an important actor in this game. And it has his or her own life strategies and interests uh, which may change. And the fish wants to steal bait, but keep her options open and wait and see what happens. Actually, we know very little about Ukrainians with two passports. There may be several million of them already, and the number is growing. Did they become de facto dual citizens for instrumental, practical reasons only, to have access to better safety nets and labor markets and education opportunity in Russia? Or sentimental attachments are present in their motivations too. And these two sets of motivations are not mutually exclusive, of course. What is their understanding of divided loyalties? We do not know. This is a new phenomenon, and no research has been done yet. And a lot of field work has to be done. Uncontrolled proliferation of Russian citizenship in the neighboring states may be a double-edged Sword, sword for Russia. There is a very strong coalition against easing naturalization proce uh, procedures within Russia. And until 2014, this coalition had an upper hand in internal, behind the scenes, bureaucratic battles. And of course, if you limit your uh, knowledge about Russia, uh, uh, by reading New York Times and CNN and watching CNN every day, Putin's Russia looks like a well-oiled machine operated by an omnipresent, powerful leader. But there are politics in Russia. These are bureaucratic politics. Policy outcomes from bargaining among governmental actors. And important decisions are often made uh, by president, but only if the issue reaches his desk. But the rest is decided by bureaucracies, and they have uh, different interests. And I will argue that Russian citizenship policies may be best of all explained by the internal, intellectual, and political divisions over the essence of Russian statehood and nationhood fragile political coalitions and balances, bureaucratic competition, weakness of the legislature, poor implementation of already adopted laws, and ad hoc bureaucratic coalitions. There is a very strong deep state resistance to liberalization of Russian citizenship regime. And so what are the arguments against further liberalization of Russian citizenship policies. First, ethnic selectivity, ethnicization of citizenship policies are always very dangerous 
in multi-ethnic countries. Ethnic profiling in naturalization process could challenge domestic fragile balances and spark concerns, say, among Russia's Muslims in Tatarstan and other regions. This is a Pandora box many people in Russia who do not want to open. And second, and this is related to the first, there are security considerations and law enforcement agencies' concerns. There are difficulties in background checks of new citizens. There are always threats of extremism and terrorism. The security services and law enforcement types are control freaks everywhere, in Russia even more so, of course. And proliferation of Russian citizenship beyond the borders challenges the instruments of control. This fish on the previous cartoon, you know, is a actor, independent actor, and those guys cannot control it. Three, there are identity issues. In the 90s, there were a lot of nationalist fear mongering that most new Russian citizens will be Muslims from Central Asia. It would allegedly change ethnic and cultural makeup of Russia. It looks like the Kremlin has found a way to address this particular concern in the new citizenship law amendments. And since 2017, Ukraine is treated as, as a special case in the Russian law. And of course, Ukrainians are viewed much more favorably uh, by many Russian nationalists than Central Asians. It looks like Putin is determined to encourage Russian citizenship proliferation in Ukraine, and so far in Ukraine only. However, I heard many complaints that Russian bureaucracy drags its feet and is not in a hurry to implement Putin's new citizenship politics. And of course, as always it is the case in Russia, corruption is out there. You have to pay, in many cases, to get a Russian passport, which is a hot commodity. What are geopolitical consequences of new citizenship regime? And I'm close to uh, stop. Is it weaponization of citizenship policies? Or is it an instrument of regional hegemony and dominance? Or is it an instrument of mutually beneficial integration of the post-Soviet space? Or is it an instrument of humanitarian policies through diaspora inclusion? It all depends on your perspective of what wording you would choose to describe the new phenomenon. I personally would argue that after 22 years of ineptitude, inefficiency, and indecision, Moscow started forging a new approach towards Russians in neighboring states in 2019. I characterize it as a constructing transnational citizenship regime that may eventually become one of the main tools that will secure Russian regional hegemony. Policy towards the Russian diasporas, including citizenship policy, is a tool of Moscow's broader 
national security and foreign policy strategies. And Russia's strategic aim in the post-Soviet space is keeping it as a zone of Moscow's exclusive zone of influence. And Russia's capacity to engage Russian citizens and compatriots in the post-Soviet states located west of Russia is becoming one of the instruments of Moscow's policy in the region. Russia can claim its non-resident citizens' loyalty in time of crisis and turbulence, like it was evidently in 2014. Russia can use identity and membership as a proxy for territorial control and revision of borders, and Moscow can achieve its goals without formally questioning legal political boundaries. And rapid proliferation of Russian citizenship in Ukraine, but potentially in Belarus, Kazakhstan, Moldova, would challenge the viability of these countries. And the consequences of new Russian citizenship regime can range from triggering an unexpected and unwanted waves of migration to endangering the welfare of co-ethnics in neighboring state countries or causing acrimony uh, from neighboring governments. There are maybe a lot of unintended consequences for new Russian citizenship policies. And final question, what are the consequences for Russian national identity? It looks like new forms of transborder national identities, membership and belonging are being shaped in Central and Eastern Europe and in the post-Soviet space. And I call it nation building beyond state borders. Putin is not an ethnic nationalist. The Kremlin has avoided framing and implementing its new citizenship policy in explicitly ethnic terms. New policies is not about ethnic kinship per se, but about recognition of special ties between specific transborder populations and a specific state, namely the Russian Federation. And these transborder populations are defined not in terms of their ethnicity, but in terms of their language, which is related to ethnicity, but it's not the same thing, and or in terms of territory where they live. However, both officials, mid-level, low-level officials, and general public assumes that Russia's new citizenship regime has been designed for ethnic Russians, first and most of all. And de facto, ethnic selectivity and citizenship practices strengthens both ethnic and state nationalist, and these are different things, narratives. I'll stop here, and I'll welcome any Thank questions, you. comments, and protests. Thank you. Thank you so much, Igor. And um, I will ask the first question. Um, and you've talked about Putin's policies, that he is not an, an ethnic nationalist himself, 
but is using these issues uh, to integrate and uh, integrate trans and deal with borders. I just, if you could just describe a little bit more, what is the demand for this citizenship, and what are the benefits that potentially come from the citizenship, even if you're not resettled in Russia. So what is the benefit of, obviously people in war-torn zones might want to have access to passports and travel, et cetera, but if you could define in a little more clearly why uh, uh, Russians abroad, outside the borders of Russia, would want this citizenship uh, and passport. Mm -hmm. As I already said, <coughs> Russian passport may be called hot commodity in the post-Soviet space. Of course, it's not about three Baltic states, but uh, in many parts of the former uh, uh, Soviet territory. Uh, Russia, in spite of all economic difficulties and social issues and all internal problems, still considered to be a, a very attractive uh, country in terms of employment and in terms of uh, education opportunities. Uh, and also, uh, there are some sentimental uh, uh, motives too. Let me explain. If you live in Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, you, uh, basically this is the only viable life strategy for you and your family. To move to Russia, to work there as a guest worker, resettle, whatever. Employment opportunities are not in these countries, but nearby. Uh, even in the countries west of Russia, including Ukraine, for many people, uh, even now when the two countries are actually in the, uh, in the state of war, uh, a lot of people come as guest workers. A lot of people come and study in Russian universities. It's a still, uh, this is the same like Hungary for Serbs. But, but you said that the Russian government doesn't want them to resettle in Russia. So, 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 so you're listing the incentives, but in fact the Russians don't want them to physically resettle inside the Russian Federation. Right, but the Russian government cannot control individual behavior to that extent. So it can create a set of incentives to do this or to do that. For example, it's very interesting, uh, simultaneously with adoption of new laws last year, uh, actually, Russia started discussing, Russian officials started discussing new limitations on dual citizens within Russia. And <laughs> the new constitutional amendments, which will be adopted this spring, actually include new limitation, political limitations on dual citizens within Russia. So, but once again, you do not control this process. This is intent, you can encourage or disencourage people to move to Russia, but of course there will be millions of individual decisions. And Russian passports are still very, very uh, attractive thing, irrespective of your political preferences in the post-service space. This is important. Okay, so I see a bunch of hands. So Isabella in front. And we'll get a microphone to you, Isabella. Thank you, thank you, Igor, for this fascinating presentation, Isabella Tabarovsky-Kennan Institute. I was curious about, 
you know, one of the three narratives you, that you identified at the beginning about Russian world uh, was recently, Putin deployed it recently uh, with regards to Israel. And so I was curious if you see, you know, what is, what is the thinking there? Do they think of, I'm pretty sure they think of them as compatriots. So anyway, if you can elucidate. Uh, the Russian world is a broad philosophical concept, and for many years it existed in the minds and publications of Russian intellectuals and also existed in the activities of uh, the Russian uh, World Foundation. But in 2014, this soft power tool was used for achieving sort of hard power goals. Uh, and the rhetoric of the Russian world was employed as justification for Russian actions in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, and thus was discredited in the eyes of many Ukrainians, and it frightened to death many people in Kazakhstan and Belarus, uh, uh, being afraid that this concept would be employed uh, in relations between Russia and these countries. Uh, actually, my understanding uh, I was not present in the room, but my understanding that some uh, lobbying by President Lukashenko was an important factor that led to uh, Russian officials actually dropping, uh, mentioning the Russian world in official statements. Uh, because uh, uh, the notion was associated not about the domain of Russian culture, encouraging teaching of Russian language, uh, educational opportunities in the forms of grants like it was before 2014, but became associated with the support of paramilitary groups, uh, separatists, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, in its initial form, you mentioned Israel, of course many Russian speakers in Israel would be in this philosophical concept, would uh, nicely fit into this concept of the Russian world uh, and some activities of the, uh, in terms of encouraging maintaining those ties with the Russian diaspora, including in Israel, are still going on, but the rhetoric has been toned down, and you do not see this term uh, in official statements by president or foreign minister anymore. But it is out there, it exists. Okay, Eric and then Karina. So Eric, raise that first. Right, right, right here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hi, Eric Lohr, American University. Um, I guess I have a practical question. So if, if there's an ethnic Russian in Ukraine who gets Russian citizenship, who has a, say, uh, I have a 17-year-old son, so this is what I'm thinking, is uh, wha how, how is the military service question dealt with? Um, is that person liable to call up in Russia? Or only when that, if and when that person moved to Russia, would that person be liable? And related um, is taxation. That's always a big question. Uh, with dual citizens, and ha is there any evidence on, on Russian Federation trying to collect taxes from the new citizens in Ukraine, and how are those things adjudicated? Um, and then uh, a separate question would be um, for uh, ethnic, say, Ukrainians or Latvians who live in the Russian Federation, has there been any kind of reciprocal attempt by those governments to try to uh, give dual citizenship to those individuals? Thank you. 
Well, uh, uh, first of all, uh, great questions, uh, uh, Eric. Thank you. Uh, military service. Uh, it's a very difficult issue, and the Russian government struggles with it. Uh, basically, uh, right now, my understanding, uh, there is a lot of discussions uh, w that engages the Ministry of Defense officials. It has not been resolved yet. Uh, and it may be resolved in the future, I think, something similarly to tax situation, your second question. The tax situation is clear. Unlike the United States that taxes its citizens irrespective of where you uh, are uh, globally for your global income, in the Russian tax law there is a definition of uh, resident for tax purposes. So that means that if you spend more than 183 days per year outside Russia, you do not pay taxes. You are not residents for uh, you are not resident for tax purposes. You may be registered. You have your propiska, your reg uh, residential registration, but you do not pay taxes at all. So. Uh, Maybe this experience will be used in resolving this military service issue, which <coughs> is important. But Russia is moving towards professional uh, armed forces, and not every single uh, male uh, of 18 uh, years old is conscripted. So uh, this pool is shrinking, and more and more professionals go. And your third question, excuse me, about uh, policies of other countries to give their citizenship? Yeah, right. I think Ukraine is really in that consideration. So the Ukrainian government yeah. offer Yeah, yeah. This is exactly what President Zelensky, that's how he reacted uh, to uh, Russian uh, moves uh, last year. And he said that he's prepared to issue passports to all Russian citizens and also to everybody who is ready to defend freedom and democracy. <laughs> so, Eric, you can apply. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are ready to uh, defend freedom and democracy. So, uh, but what was interesting, uh, Putin's reaction to these words. Putin was in Beijing, uh, and he was asked about this statement by President Zelensky. Let me read, I have it handy. Putin, quote, if Ukraine begins issuing passports to Russian citizens and we in Russia issue passports and grant citizenship to Ukrainians, then sooner or later we will inevitably come to the expected result. Everybody will have single citizenship and it must be welcomed. It's a broad vision of Trans-border membership and belonging, a situation when state boundaries are meaningless. Interesting discussion. Thank you, Karina Kristelina, School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, uh, Mason. Um, 
then you speak about citizenship as a social boundary too, right? So together with creating this unity and loyalty to the nation, it's also create differentiation with the other nations. So can you speak more about policies or actions of Russia where he's trying to intervene in different states and develop this difference between people who have dual citizenship and who not? Uh. Russian citizenship law is very liberal in terms of dual citizenship. And dual citizenship is a relatively new phenomenon. In the past, uh, well, I rem uh, it was uh, Secretary of Interior in the United States, I believe Bancroft, who said, we, uh, it's easier to accept uh, that a man has two wives than two passports. Mm -hmm. uh, but this attitude, of, co of course, has changed since 19th, it was 19th century. And your uh, citizenship is pro proliferating uh, around the globe. Uh, it's a new phenomenon. Uh, there is an emerging body of literature uh, about that. Uh, the states generally do not like uh, dual citizenship, but they basically do nothing about that. Uh, most of the states, and uh, even in Ukraine, it is illegal, uh, but there is no enforcement mechanism uh, to prevent it. Uh, by the way, it's uh, an interesting case when the most important Ukrainian oligarch, Igor Kolomoisky, uh, to my knowledge, he doesn't have a Russian citizenship, but he has three citizenship, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Israeli, and uh, citizenship of uh, Cyprus. And he was asked about the situation. He said, I know that your citizenship is prohibited in Ukraine, but triple citizenship is not. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what can you do about that? What can you do about that? Uh, so potentially, of course, the defense of your citizens abroad, and we know some instances when the countries acted uh, on that, hypothetically, it creates a situation for justification for direct uh, military involvement, but it's a growing and proliferating phenomenon around the world. So uh, I do not think that like 20 years from now, we will still be discussing the issues like that, like intervention on behalf of, because it will be a common widespread phenomenon from all sides. Hi, uh, Tiffany Law. Um, you mentioned Kazakhstan in the beginning, but uh, what is your opinion about the large number of ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan? And although the policies haven't been going towards Kazakhstan right now, how they will approach that in the future? Uh, well, uh, Kazakhstan is one of the countries where uh, a significant number of ethnic Russians lived at the moment of uh, the Soviet uh, Union collapse. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was like 36% of the population. If you count the Russian speakers, which usually would include, uh, you know, also ethnic Ukrainians, Belarusians, I don't know, Armenians living in Kazakhstan and so on, it was 40-something percent a similar situation. Uh, Estonia was at uh, the moment when it regained its uh, independence. So uh, many of them emigrated in the 90s. Uh, 
Kazakh uh, Kazakhstan economy was in the worst possible shape in the post-Soviet uh, space in the 90s, and that also was affected pushing away uh, actually Russians who uh, lived in northern Kazakhstan. So there are at least two million less uh, ethnic Russians today in Kazakhstan where there were the Soviet collapse. Uh, basically, uh, there is absolutely no uh, well hostility towards uh, Russians. There is no direct discrimination, though there are language issues, of course. And the adoption of the official languages in all post-Soviet space, well, put many Russians in a difficult situation because as a rule, they did not know local languages, those Russians living uh, outside Russia. And that limited their career opportunities in the government, of course. Uh, there are cases of high level uh, ministers uh, who are ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan and so on, but the language, but this is a problem for many presidents. <laughs> of the newly independent states whose home language is, uh, was, and in some cases still is Russian, uh, but publicly they have uh, to speak uh, uh, the official language. Uh, and uh, this is a challenge. So uh, the future, uh, it depends first on uh, economic situation in Kazakhstan. Uh, right now, there is not uh, many incentives, immediate incentives, uh, to ethnic Russians living in Kazakhstan to obtain Russian passport. The same is about Belarusians, because with these countries, you can go to Russia and work there without any work permit. Uh, you can be employed uh, on the same basis as a Russian citizen because of intergovernmental uh, agreements. So there is no immediate incentive to uh, get a Russian passport because you can get these opportunities uh, without that. Uh, as I already mentioned, Kazakhstan was very much concerned about this transformation of the Russian world concept into a sort of hot power uh, instrument uh, in 2014. They are very concerned about that, but generally speaking, the Russian community in Kazakhstan enjoys a lot of, uh, you know, freedom and uh, uh, opportunities, unlike in many other countries. First, because of economic, better economic performance, like uh, in comparison with many other countries. And second, uh, uh, I would give a lot of credit to uh, the first president of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, who uh, on all possible occasions mentioned uh, that ethnic Russians are a part of the na political nation of Kazakhstan and so on and so forth, that, uh, thus giving peace of mind to many Russians in this country. In the back. And we're coming to, so Show of hands those to other questions. So we'll take these two questions together. Hi, um, Alessia Serene, State Department. I was curious uh, when, so go, just going back to Ukraine for a second, I know that in response to these additional decrees by which folks could get Russian citizenship, the uh, EU and certain countries even within the EU made statements you know, to the contrary that they would not recognize certain passports that were passed under those decrees or that, and I think it was unclear if it was enforceable or not, 
but either at the EU level or countries within, there were several statements made uh, condemning, you know, the, the weaponization is that narrative that you used. Um, I wonder what is your thought in terms of whether those types of gestures actually have any effect on the Russian policy? Um, it, is there any unanticipated reaction in a negative sense, or is it just that much more political noise because of how amorphous, you know, dual, triple, et cetera, citizenship and holding multiple passports is? Thank okay. you. I'll take this question from here as well. Microphone's going, coming down the hall, coming down the road. I'm John Benner. I'm in the United States Army. Thanks for your presentation. Just had a question. Um, you mentioned that uh, the bureaucratic forces in Russia were um, maybe hesitant uh, about um, expanding um, or offering citizenship and passports to uh, Russians abroad because of the risk associated with other ethnic minorities, which may also uh, want to do the same thing. Um, have you seen or heard instances of ethnic minorities within Russia lobbying the Russian government to extend Russian uh, citizenship to other minorities across the border? Thank you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, to, uh, the question regarding the Russian reaction to the EU uh, measures aimed at somehow disencouraging Russia of continuing uh, its policy of uh, proliferation of Russian uh, citizenship in the uh, neighboring countries. I have not seen any evidence of that Russia somehow reacted, uh, has reacted to that. I have discussions in the foreign ministry and uh, at other places, and I have no evidence. Maybe uh, this is a matter of concern, but I just do not know. Uh, second, uh, about uh, uh, other mm, ethnic groups living in Russia, demanding that their co-ethnics in neighboring states have the same privileges. Uh, yeah, uh, you see, they have the same opportunity because uh, there is nothing about Russian ethnicity. Uh, in the Russian law. It's, uh, there is uh, a category of Russian native speakers, but this is only one, uh, and many minorities are native Russian speakers, or may claim, uh, you may have more than one native language. And most people in Ukraine, by the way, are real uh, bilingual people. So, and uh, r uh, speaking about Russian ethnic minorities, you can say the same. So all Russian policies uh, legally uh, refer uh, and can be applied to say Tatars, ethnic Tatars living in Uzbekistan. And there are many ethnic Tatars living in Uzbekistan. There is nothing in the Russian law which would prevent them from uh, enjoying the same privileges uh, as all others in the uh, Russian law. But in fact, practice policy implementation, if you talk to people on law and mid-level of bureaucracy, the assumption that this is about uh, ethnic Russians. So that's why it's a matter of concerns and that I know, for example, in Tatarstan about uh, that uh, they may be treated unequally in practice, in law implementation. Okay, so thank you very much, Igor, for an excellent thank presentation, and thank you all for coming. We look forward to seeing you at uh, future Kennan Institute events. Thank you. Thank you.